Welcome to Jim Riley's Words and Music Podcast. Mr. Riley. Hey, how are you? Hey there. Hey, Hello. Hello. I sure can, yeah. Come uh, this, is, this is James, I assume. Hey, there you are. In 1983, Vinnie Federa and Joey Laricella set out to make guitars that would, in their words, look and sound phenomenal and be instruments that you just couldn't put down. Vinnie's road to that point was one of chance meetings and more than a little luck merged with raw artistic talent, passion and youthful exuberance. The 40 years of Federa basses that have followed have been a blueprint for how to build musical instruments that are true works of art in form, function and sound. Vinny was there at the beginning of the boutique custom luthier movement. His story goes back to what some may say was a simpler time when woodworkers, luthiers, pickup makers, and all sorts of other creative people collaborated to craft the instruments and the instrument business that continues to inspire players and builders alike. Collaboration is at the heart of the Federa story. That'll be obvious as you listen, but it goes deeper. There's a natural, authentic exchange of ideas, thoughts, and theories that take things to the next level, where the whole becomes better than the sum of the parts. In performance, energy is exchanged between the musician and the audience. Federa's stage is the sawdust-covered workbench where shapes are carved, inlay cut, and electronics wired. The energy transferred is between creator and player and paves the path for the music that enriches us all. It's been 40 years since Vinnie and Joey first hung out their shingle. They've weathered the highs and lows of the music business, put bass guitars in the hands of some of the finest players on the planet, and continue to set the standard for custom-crafted instruments. Regardless of all that, my favorite part of Vinnie's story is how it speaks to the power of serendipity and little signs in shop windows. I hope you enjoy. Uh, so first of all, you know, obviously, well, let's start with congratulations. In 40 years of, of Federa guitars, I'm not going to say Federa basses yet, but Federa guitars, 40 years of that, <laughs> is that's an amazing that accomplishment. That's an anomaly. That's a strange uh, uh, name for the company. But in fact, I, oh, first of all, thank you for your congratulations. Yes. It's much appreciated. Yes. Uh, when we started the business, Joey and I, we didn't know we were going to be building it bases nearly exclusively. We we had intended to make guitars, but it just happened that um, bass players started coming in, and very few guitar players came by to ask for guitars. So uh, it just happened that way. Yeah. Well, let let let's leave that question. I've actually got that that uh, kind of slated to go a little bit later. And let's leave that because okay. I, I have my theories about why that is. Um, but let's let's jump way back and and. Uh, and I envision this woodworkers co-op in the in the mid seventies, late seventies in New York, with you know all these these uh, different folks, and and uh, I think you kind of yes. know where where I'm going with this. Um, yes. And this is so you're if I if I have my my research right, you're seventeen year old kid, and you've just done a, a guitar making um, class, a classical guitar making class. And did you did you stumble onto this co-op, or how did you connect to that that co-op? It was, uh, it was a serendipitous coincidence. Um, I was actually 19 mm. at the time. I had um, stumbled upon a class by, totally by accident uh, that was being given by the New School for Social Research in Manhattan, New York City. And they were offering a class on ca- uh, classical guitar construction. Uh, and it was being given by a, a fine luthier named Thomas Humphrey. Um, it, it was one of, for me, it was one of those moments, you know, where the light bulb goes off in the top of your head. When I read the description for the class, I just knew I had to get into that class. Um, I wasn't planning on being a guitar builder. In fact, I was attending art school. I wanted to be an illustrator. Wow. I jokingly tell everybody, uh, I wanted to be the next Norman Rockwell, wow. but but I really did want to be the next Norman Rockwell. So I was studying illustration and painting and and all that when I saw the advertisement for the guitar class. So um, I was just kind of amazed that there was such a thing, you know. And I was very curious, so I called the new school. Luckily, there were one or two openings left. Uh, I ran down, gave him my deposit, and, and I was in. 
So, were, so you, were you a player at the time? Like, were you a guitar player before that? Or? I was playing guitar, yeah. Okay. Uh, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's good. I'm, I'm an amateur, you know, but I was just playing guitar. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, when I got in the class, it was an evening class. It was one night a week for something like 12 weeks. And in that class, the, the teacher, Tom Humphrey, he paired each student with another, you know, so there were like six pairs, I think, of, of us uh, students. And my, my uh, partner was a fellow named Alan Redner. Um, Alan was a lawyer, if I recall correctly, or studying to be a lawyer. And he was in it just for curiosity. He'd had no idea, no designs about being a guitar builder or anything. He was just curious. So I got to know Alan pretty well. And after a few weeks, he seemed very impressed with my passion for the, for the class and offered to bring me to see the brand new shop of a dear friend of his, a man named Stuart Spector. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Stuart apparently had just maybe six months earlier opened his shop in Brooklyn on 12th street. Yeah. And so uh, the minute I heard that, of course, I started drooling and I was practically threatening Alan to bring me there as soon as possible. And, you know, he did. He arranged for it. Stuart was very kind and allowed us to go. Um, I didn't. I brought my guitar with me. I was building a classical guitar, Mm. a nylon string. It wasn't finished yet, but it was all together. And I brought it along to show Stuart. I was hoping to impress him a little bit, you know. Um, Stuart was awesome. He was so kind, you know, yeah. he showed us around. And, and as you mentioned a moment ago, his shop was part of a woodworkers cooperative. Yes. It was a large, uh, uh, I forgot what floor, it was an old factory building. Yep. Yep. The Ansonia clock building is what it used to be. Correct. That's right. Yep. That's right. Uh, and Stuart and his friends, uh, rented a floor might have been like the fourth floor, fifth floor, somewhere up there. And it was a big open space, something like 5,000 square feet. And there were, gee, I want to say maybe eight or so uh, craftsmen sharing the space, sharing the rent. You know, So Stewart had a corner. Um, and as it turns out, Ned Steinberger happened to be right opposite him yeah. in the other corner. Uh, they were a fine, a group of fine uh, cabinet makers. Uh, I remember one fellow named Walter Paul. Um, later on, another uh, interesting uh, uh, member of the co-op was a guy named Doug Yule. He joined the co-op uh, about a year after I got there. And he was a bass player for the Velvet Underground, oh, Lou Reed. Yeah. Gave up music to become a woodworker and ended up there. Uh so that was the uh, scene, you know, that was the, uh, the scenario, yeah. the, the place where I met Stuart. So would this have been before the, the Spectre NS base where Ned designed the, yeah, yeah. so this, this predates that? Yes. Nice. Uh, when I, so when I, the day Alan Redner brought me to meet Stuart, um, after the little tour, you know, Stuart took me around the whole shop, introduced me to everybody, um, I, as I was leaving, I very sheepishly asked him if I could possibly ever work there. He never needed help. You know, I'd be very interested in working there. And he said, well, I don't have any openings now, but give me your number. If anything comes up, you know, I'll give you a call. Two weeks later, he called. I was thrilled. Yeah. (laughs) I was thrilled. I mean, I can't even describe how excited I was, you know. Um, I don't know if I ever told him this, but. He asked me that day, uh, would you mind coming in and starting sort of part-time? Yeah, whatever you want. You know, I was excited. Yeah. Uh, you know how to cut Mother of Pearl? I need you to cut the logos for me. I don't think I, I had never cut Pearl, but I kind of lied a little bit. Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I know how I, I know how to do it. I'm No problem. Yeah. So I, he told me to come down, and I never left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, once I got there, he couldn't get rid of me. Wow. Uh, nice. It was awesome, you know. It was just what what an incredibly lucky uh, coincidence yeah. that I just happened to see that little sign in the World Trade Center. 
in one of the banks as mm-hmm. I was walking past. I called. There were two openings left. I was able to get in that class. Alan Redner, new steward, brought me. You know, it was just yeah. an incredible sequence of good luck. Yeah, serendipitous events, and yeah, it's amazing really? how that that comes. You know, and honestly, yeah, if you had to turn left instead of right, you know, who knows? Absolutely, who knows where we I was. I was just I was delivering stocks and bonds. Yeah. It was a part time job for one of those Wall Street brokerage houses. Sure. In those days, and I had to make a, a a delivery in the World Trade Center, so I went down into the lower concourse level to get to the elevator, and as I'm walking past this bank. There's a sign in the window, a little eight and a half by 11 inch sheet of paper wow. that was taped to the window. And I couldn't read it, but I was curious. It just caught my eye out of the corner of my eye. I walked over to it. And that was the advertisement for the new school wow. that was featuring the. Uh... So had I just not noticed that paper, I probably would never be a guitar builder. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's Strange how things go. It really is. So I, I was talking with Ned a couple of days ago, and I asked him about about you back in the day, um, mm-hmm. and and kind of what you know how how you fit in. What was that thing? And this is the quote. I actually wrote it down. He came in to be employed, and he blew everybody's mind. That's what happened because of just his raw talent. Uh, he was this extremely nice guy, completely unassuming, um, a local Brooklyn kid, uh, really fine young man, and he just blew us away with his raw talent. Um, and and I wow. liked that. Yeah, I thought that was that was pretty cool. That is very nice of Ned to say such kind words. Yeah. Wow. Well, and the, and they were a little bit older than you too, right? So I see this, yes. you know, you're 19 years old and you're coming in and you're, again, these guys haven't, you know, made a name for themselves. They're, you know, nobody knows who Stuart Spector oh, or not Ned, yet. Ned Steinberger are. Um, you know, that's going to change for sure. And then, but you're this kind of young mentee or, you know, um, this kid who's in there and, and, and a part of all this stuff as it's, as it's coming together. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you started off doing the Mother and Pearl. What else did you do? How did you kind of graduate, you know, to doing other things? And what were some of the other um, kind of pieces that you were that you were a part of back then? Well, as soon as uh, well, soon after I, I, I got comfortable, you know, cutting out those uh, logos for Stewart. Um, he had at the time he had a partner named uh, Alan Charney, who was a very skilled cabinet maker. Alan was a, a, a great woodworker and um, Stuart and Alan approached me with, uh, you know, would I be interested in doing more, you know, actually learning how to cut out parts and glue up the bodies to the necks and so forth. So I was thrilled. I said, sure, you know, bring it on, you know, whatever you want me to do, I'm eager to learn. So Alan showed me his process Um and I was able to do it right away. I mean, I just understood everything he showed me. And it, it was very uh, easy for me to adapt to his ways of, you know, cutting and joining and gluing and all that stuff. So before long, I was doing much of the, you know, processes that whatever they needed me to do, you know. Um, those days, the parts were made from scratch, um, as they still are. Um, so, you know, there were big planks of lumber that had to be milled down and, you know, sized up and, you know, joined and glued and shaped and so forth. So it was a lot of work, but it was, it was extremely enjoyable. Yeah. And you guys were creating the, the, um, tools to do this too. I remember you telling me about, a yeah, like, uh, I can't remember, um, what it was called. There was a name for it, but it was like, you put, it cut six of the wings at a time and you, and you kind of, Oh yeah, that was the, um, Oh gosh, that was the, um, I'm trying to remember the name of that machine. It was, uh, it was sort of a, a multi carving machine. Yeah. Um, there was actually a gentleman in the same building who had several of these machines and he was carving furniture legs, table legs, chair legs, you know, ornate ball and cloth foot type, you know, uh, legs for the furniture industry. And uh, I think, I don't remember if it was Stuart or Alan who went down and made his acquaintance and kind of got the idea from his machines. So if for a spell, we were actually using his machines to do some of the body cutting, but then later on we were doing it ourselves upstairs. Uh, Alan was really good at designing and building uh, custom machines for, 
some of the more difficult steps, you know. Um, so that was a part of everything, not just making the bases, but making machines that made the bases. Nice, yeah. So a few years are, are going by, and I know uh, Federa is uh, 83 is when it kind of officially launches. Um, how do you yeah. go from being, you know, the guy that's that's kind of, you know, helping out and, and, and doing the pieces and part of the, the Spectre family, how does it go then to, to creating your own, your own instruments, your own brand, your own, you know, your own your own company that transition involved a catalyst mm. that catalyst was ken smith okay um near the end of my stay at specter well let's say like the last year and change uh ken smith found uh stewart's stewart he, he found out about stewart and came up to uh, speak with him and they made an arrangement where we would be making the uh, Smith bases for, for Ken in our shop. Smith provided the design. It was all his designs. Uh, he would come in and oversee everything, but he needed a shop. He needed craftspeople to actually fabricate them for him. He didn't have that yet. This was his very first foray into his own, you know, base uh, company. So the first generation of Smith bases were made at the Spectre shop. Okay. And it, not entirely, but largely fell on me to do uh, the carving of them. Um, so I got to know Ken very well in those days as he would come up and supervise and watch me and tell me how to shape, you know, each section of the base until I really had it memorized well. Um, at some point, uh, I was starting to get itchy and I wanted to move on and do some more creative things. Um, I love Stuart and, and Alan and Stuart has always been to me, not just a mentor, but like a big brother to me. I love that man. He's one of the most generous, amazing guys I've ever known. Um, my leaving was more about me just growing and being antsy, you know, and wanting to explore different things. It's nothing about the shop. It was just all in my heart. Yeah. Well, and you're still, you're still a kid too, right? You need to find your own. Yeah. Oh yeah. I never grew up. <laughs> That's for sure. yeah. Still, I mean, I'm no, I'm still a kid. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, 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 I told Stuart I needed to move on and, and I wanted to do my own stuff. So Smith sees the opportunity, you know, he offered to uh, build a shop, uh, that was conveniently located near where I live. And uh, if I would agree to continue building his bases for him. And I did, I agreed. So I moved along, um, left Stewart, uh, Smith established a small shop in, um, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, close to where I was living at the time. And I, I'd be able to walk over every day and I'd have nice long days to, to do what I had to do for him. And that shop lasted a few years, about two years, I want to say, two, two years and change. It was in that shop while I was there building bases for Ken that I met Joey Lorisella. Good. Yeah, I was good. I was, I'm glad you went there. Cause that's where, that's where I was going to go to was to ask about Joey and, and, uh, and how he, he fits into this story. It's again, another incredibly serendipitous meeting. It was pure chance as it turned out. Well, let me backtrack a teeny bit. One day while I was working in Smith's shop, I was by myself The knock at the door. I opened the door and there's this guy named, I said, hi, who, who are you? How are you? Uh, I'm Joey. <laughs> what are you, what are you guys doing in here? You, you're like making Smith bases. See, there was a little sign on the door, a very little sign yeah. that said Ken Smith bases LTD. Otherwise you would never know it was a woodworking shop in there. Um, Joey happened to be driving past. He had just dropped his daughter off at his mother's house or something. He was, you know, in those days, he was Mr. Mom taking care of his, his new daughter. Drove past, I, I get like kind of like what happened to me. Out of the corner of his eye, he spotted the little sign in the door and, and was intrigued because at the time he was selling Ken Smith bases. He was actually a very active bass player, still is. Yeah. Uh, 
and had uh, purchased one for himself. But Ken had his uh, showroom, his apartment. His apartment slash showroom slash office was in New York City. Hmm. The shop where they were being built was in Brooklyn. So all of his customers would go to his uh, apartment in New York City and never got to see the shop, actually. So Joey had no knowledge of the shop. It was a surprise when he drove by and knocked on the door and he saw, you know, the, the Smith carcasses, you know, all, all over the shop. So uh, I invited him in and he told me his story and we were just both kind of shocked. It was like an oh wow moment. You're actually you're actually building these and you're the guy selling them. Oh wow, <laughs> nice to meet you. You know, so it, we just struck up an immediate friendship. He's an incredibly personable guy. You love him right away. You know, you, he's a good man, Joey. So uh, from that meeting evolved a friendship that turned into a partnership. Um, after two years or so, um, I wanted to start building my own instruments. I, was, I had a ton of ideas that were swirling around in my head. Joey was coming by frequently and um, helping me coalesce those ideas and together we had some good ideas. You know, he, I, I, I'm the craft, I'm the craftsman. He's the professional player. His knowledge and mine combined, we were able to, you know, maybe refine a few things and yeah. come up with some interesting ideas. Yeah. I, so. I love that. You've got the, you know, the player on one side and the, you know, the creator on the other side. And I always love that relationship between, between those two things. But again, such a, seems like such a perfect match, right? Here's the, here's the guy with the, you know, with the, um, who, who's out there playing and, you know, I'm a player yes. myself and I, I'll be playing. I think, geez, it really would be nice if it could do this. So they go to, he goes to you and says, well, you know, how do we do this? And then you do it, you know, and I, Absolutely. I, I just love it, that relationship. It, it was the perfect marriage yeah we, we were able to uh well let, let me say i i would not ever have been able to build these things the way they are and design them and develop them as they are without his input yeah well i you know you get wrapped up in the craft of building them and my skills as a builder were good you know i could carve wood real nice and and even sketch up some really cool looking designs, the artist in me, you know, but there's a lot more to a fine instrument than that. It could look spectacular. You know, it could be a pretty shape with all kinds of bells and whistles, inlays and so forth. But if it doesn't sound right or feel right, it, it, in my mind, it's a failure. Yeah. I and Joey's agree. knowledge as a player brought those uh, um, things to my attention. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, together we were able to get some good stuff happening. Also, I want to add one other component to that. I think what is a big part of our success is that we've always listened to all of our friends and players. Whenever someone ordered a bass and they came to get it, we would be curious and ask, tell me, what do you like? What don't you like? If you hate it, say so. Don't be afraid. You know, we wanted to know the truth. And, uh, you know, this way we could improve if there was something they caught that we didn't. And sometimes they did. You know, every now and then a customer would say, gee, I wish I could reach that 24th fret a little better. If you could deepen that cutaway or the neck pickup's a little too bassy. If you could move it down a drop, you know, my better response and things like that. Little, little changes that their uh, playing experience could tell us that we would not have known otherwise or maybe not thought of you yeah know? that that's so interesting and again i think one of the hallmarks of of Federa is that connection that you've had to the artists um, right from the beginning and and i've got another story to to run past you to get a little bit of of feedback from you and that's the the victor wooten story so he oh yeah, yeah so this is 1993 and again uh, correct me if I get this pieces of this 80, wrong. 1983. Yeah, 1983. And, uh, you know, here's a young, you know, Vic Wooten is, is playing with his brothers. And you guys, you and Joey show up at a studio 
with a couple of bass guitars. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you say, would pick the one that you like the best. He picks, I think it was a Monarch, one of the first yes. Monarchs. And, yes. uh, and the way Victor tells the story, it's that you guys said to him, well, take it, you know, pay us when you can. We want you to have this instrument. And, you know, and mm-hmm. that blew him away at the time. And to this day, you know, Vic Wooten is, is well, he's not just one of your artists, but he's part of that Federa family. Oh, Victor is, he's, he's a brother. He's yeah. my brother. Yeah. I love Victor as, as I would, you know, if he were my own blood brother, really. Yeah. Uh, these relationships sometimes evolve very deeply, you know, because we, we, we care about one another. We help each other. It's a struggle for all of us. Um, things are better now after 40 years yeah. of struggling, you know, but it was a long, hard journey. And, you know, we're in it together. That's how we've always felt. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about that meeting back in 83, um, you know, with showing up, like what was, what was going on? What was your thinking? Is that, is that right that you kind of just, you know, let him have the base and, and, you know, pay yeah, for I'll it as tell you, you there's a little more detail. Than, okay, good, than, good, good, good. And again, talk about serendipity, boy. <laughs> it just kept happening. It was amazing. Uh, what happened exactly was Joey and I were in the shop. We were finishing up, just finished two bases that we were about to bring to Sam Ash. Um, in those days, it wasn't easy to get orders for bases. We had two Monarch bases that had just finished. Joey was going to bring them to Sam Ash. We get a phone call. Uh, it was a, a, a guitar player named Ira Siegel who is a phenomenal guitar player uh, back then and now still a great guitar player. He was a, a very heavy session guy back in those days. So he was hired to do a recording in New Jersey for an artist named Kashif. And the bass player that was hired for that gig was this young unknown kid named Victor Wooten. So Victor had brought a bass with him that the producer was not happy with, didn't like the way it was sounding on tape. So they were struggling with it and it was getting a little uncomfortable. So Ira thought, gee, let me call my buddies in Brooklyn. You know, they just started a bass business. Maybe they got something we could use. And, you know, so Ira called Joey, uh, spoke with him and said, well, yeah, we got these two bases. We just finished. I'll, I'll bring them down right now. Luckily, he was able to go, you know, we were, he was free enough to take, just take off. And he drove to New Jersey with these two Monarch bases. And he was ushered into the studio, introduced to Victor. Uh, Victor tried both of them. One of them he preferred, the one he ended up keeping, number 37. And uh, successfully finished the session. The producer was happy with the sound and Victor loved the way it felt. He was able to just go. And everything turned out well. At the end of the session, uh, Victor felt that he wanted to keep that bass. He really liked it. Um, And he asked Joey if he could buy it. Uh, Joey, of course, said, yeah, sure. Be great. We'd love for you to have it. Uh, But the thing was, Victor didn't come to New Jersey expecting to buy anything. He didn't have any money with him. This was just a, a, a fluke, you know, something that he wasn't prepared for so joey said to him don't worry about it just take it and when you get the money send it you know it's cool don't worry about it you you you're amazing want you to have it you know so joey just was so impressed with him uh, let him take it that's that's how that all started that's awesome and victor was very uh, touched by that gesture i I suppose he didn't expect that so yeah when joey came back to the shop he had one base with him. So I asked him, you know, what happened? I sold the base. <laughs> really? Yeah, this kid, Victor, you got to hear him. He's incredible. Oh, my God. And he's gushing about how great. And, all right, so how much did you get for you? He goes, well, I, I don't know. I didn't get any money yet. He didn't have any money on him. I said, really? What? He, goes, <laughs> he said to me, well, I, I don't worry. It's cool. He's a great guy. Don't worry about it. Yeah, okay. Awesome. You trust them? That's good enough for me. Yeah, you know, I hadn't I hadn't met Victor yet that day. You know, okay. so I didn't know. Yeah, I just knew when Joey came back and yeah. told me. Wow! But I was surprised 
But he always got good intuition. Sure. He could read people really well. And he really, he fell in love with Victor that day. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And that's how it happened. Yeah. That's awesome. And again, Victor says like, that was his voice when he found that instrument and, and you know, it was, it spoke to him, it connected to him. And that was, that was his voice, which is, which again is awesome. Now go figure. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew that would happen? Yep. Um, just happened. Let's jump over to Anthony Jackson. And I think he's probably the, yes. um, I don't, I don't want to say, you know, one artist is more influential than the other in, in the story, but he's, he's, uh, he's pretty darn influential as well. Oh, yes, he is. Yes. yes. Anthony is a, a real unique man. Um, we were very blessed to meet him and work with him. And that happened, again, via Ken Smith. Hmm. He was the catalyst for that. When I was working for Ken before I formed Federa Guitars with Joey, uh, Anthony was one of Ken's clients, and uh, he contracted with Ken to build a few of those early six-string contrabass guitars. Right. And as as it happened in the Spectre shop, it fell to me to work personally with Anthony. Ken brought Anthony to the shop and I was the guy building the bases. So I had to talk to Anthony. I had to get to know him and, and get into his head and see what he wanted. Um, so that's how I developed a friendship and a relationship with him. Now, if my, if I'm understanding correctly, and if I like that, that instrument and his contrabass, that's, that's brand new. Nobody had ever done that before. That's kind of an Anthony Jackson um, original. That's correct. Yeah, I'm thinking That's the correct. only six-string basses that I would have been aware of would have been like the the um, the Fender Six, which was you know almost more of a baritone guitar than a real than That's a, correct. a bass. Okay. So uh, what you just said about the six-string bass is yeah. correct. Okay. Fender was the only company, to my knowledge, that had a six-string bass, but it was actually a baritone guitar. Yeah. Anthony's concept was a true contrabass guitar. Right full scale bass with six strings tuned in fourths, just like a four string bass with a high and a lower string added on either end. Right. Uh, that had not been done before. So that was definitely his concept. Um, he had gone to Carl Thompson who built the, actually built the very first one. Okay. Um, as Anthony told me, he wasn't very satisfied with it. So he sought out another builder, which turned out to be Ken Smith. Um, Ken was able to work with him and get uh, the first few versions closer to Anthony's vision. Um, but at the time I left Ken to go form for their guitars with Joey, we were kind of in, you know, we were just, getting into it, working with Anthony on these. So he was a bit concerned about how to, you know, how to continue if I were leaving Ken. So in order for him to continue receiving the kind of attention and, you know, workmanship that he was getting used to, he decided to, to come along with Joey and I so that we could continue building the contrabasses for him. Mm -hmm. And, that's how the, the, the relationship developed between Joey, uh, myself, and, and Anthony. Tell me about that, that single cut, that single cutaway, because um, I think that's, that's a big you know, thing that you've added to the, to the industry as well. Um, and I think, again, if I have it right, that it was that, was that Anthony Jackson bass where, where that came about. It's correct. You're right. That's okay. right. Uh, the way that happened was we had built numerous versions of the contrabass prior to the single cut. Um, every time we finished one for Anthony, well, each one was different. So we would build one uh, after much discussion and, and put our ideas together and then build, build one. He would play it, um, enjoy it, uh, you know, take it out on the road, record. He put it through all the paces. And then he, when he came back to New York, he would come back to the shop and give us a full critique about it. What he liked, what he didn't like, what he wished we could improve and so forth. So we'd build the next one, which would incorporate the 
improvements and suggestions that he had just provided us. And so in this way, each subsequent one was better than its predecessor Mm. and got to the point where I was starting to run out of ideas. You know, he kept Mm. pushing me. What can you do next? This one's really good, but how can you make it better? (laughs) He's always pushing me like that. Yeah. And I was stumped for a while. The, the, the last double cutaway one had a lot of good stuff in it. And I was racking my brain to figure a way of improving on that. Um, it had really fine tone woods. It, uh, it had these LED indicator lights embedded in the side of the upper horn so uh-huh. he could tell what mode he was in, in, in dark venues, uh, it had all kinds of stuff, which was very, very useful and he enjoyed, but he always wanted more and yeah. better. Wow. So it was kind of in a, it was, just, it was a moment I was waking up from sleep and I was envisioning a single cutaway shape in my head. Um, the thought occurred to me that by ex- connecting the upper horn to the neck would shorten the free part of the neck. Mm. and make it more rigid you know those those necks are big it takes a lot to make them stable to keep them from you know warping and, and, and bowing and so forth so it was a structural thing i thought let me join that horn to the neck at the 12th fret or thereabouts and that way the remainder of the neck that's out in space the free portion of the neck is shorter and it should be stiffer yeah and it should resonate better. It should yes. respond better. Yeah. Plus, there's more body to neck connection, kind of like a unibody car, you know, something where all the vibrations can just transfer quickly throughout. So I tried it. I designed it on paper first. It looked good, built it, and he loved it. Mm. It seemed to do the trick. It actually was a noticeable improvement mm. over all the previous models. Noticeable from a from a playability standpoint or from a tonal standpoint? In, in every way. Yeah, okay, good. Way. Yeah. He felt that um, because of the way I carved the way the back of the neck, you know, when you look at it, if you've never turned it around and you look at it from the front, you wonder how do you reach all those high notes if the cutaway, there's no cutaway up there. It's just the way it's all carved out in the back. Mm. Um, we made it such that he had full access to the very last fret. So in spite of the single cut, it was very comfortable to play. And um, sonically, it was a very noticeable improvement. Mm -hmm. Aesthetically, he loved the appearance of it. And it was new and different. You know, it it got a lot of notice because there was nothing quite like that before. So Mm -hmm. it it was a success on many levels. And we haven't ever gone back. You know, henceforth, they've all been single cuts. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's infiltrated other designs too. You know, yes, so see that with, yes. with lots of uh, other, other. Once things. people started noticing that they were asking, you know, Hey, I, I you know, I love the, yeah. the emperor shape, but could you think you can make it a single cut for me? I like the way that looks, and, yeah. you know, that sort of inquiry was, was coming in a lot. Sure. And so we thought, yeah, let's see, why not? And started sketching and uh, coming up with single cut versions of, the double cut designs that we had. Yeah. Um, and to this day, you know, not everybody prefers that. I don't know why someone prefers one style over the other, but there are folks that still want a good old fashioned double cut uh, base. And some folks just love the single cuts. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm even looking at, at some of your, your newer instruments. I'm looking at the, the Mike Bendy, um, that mini presentation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is which is an amazing. Well, it sounds amazing when I listen to it with uh, you know good headphones on YouTube. I'm sure it's it's awesome in real life too. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, yeah Mike. Again, it it all comes down to being open and listening to your artists and your friends. Mm-hmm. I must say, and I'm I'm not saying this in in any boastful way, but I think to be a real success, you have to be devoid of ego Mm. you know if you think you know it all i think you're going to get stuck somewhere Mm. you're not going to make real great progress if you're open to everybody 
you've got a, thousands of ideas coming at you and suggestions. And some of those are going to be very good, but you have to have you have to have the humility to incorporate those into your own work. Mm. You know, so Joey and I embrace everyone and their ideas. And like Mike's a good example. You know, he's an incredibly talented player. Yeah. And uh, he knows all of our instruments intimately well. He's been playing them for years, working with us on and off for years. So he's out, had opportunity to lay hands on just about everything we've ever built. Mm. And when it came time to have something done for himself, he was able to, uh, you know, refine and coalesce some of the ideas uh, or features of uh, other models down, you know, and, and boil it down to something that would suit him better. Mm. And uh, we did it. We built it. We yeah. built the thing that he was asking for, and it turned out to be really cool. Yeah. Great. And that's, that's how it happens sometimes. Yeah, that's so interesting, though. And again, go right back to the very beginning, you know, with, mm -hmm. with you and Joey. It's that same relationship with other people, um, you mm -hmm. know, and again, never stopping listening to the, the players and incorporating those things and, and making those instruments for them. It's, it's, yeah, it's just always been that way. And it, it impresses me, too, that you're continually evolving and continually, continually growing. You didn't just get, okay, here's, here's what the Federa bass is, and, you know, I'm going to mass produce it, and it's never going to change. Um, it's always been evolving and changing and incorporating different things and, and uh, different technologies. And, it's, again, I think that's one of the reasons why it's been around for so long. Thank you for yeah. saying so. Uh, it, it is a tricky business, you know. Um, it, it really requires being more of a custom shop than, let's say, a factory. Yeah. Factories have to invest a lot of time and money in tooling up to make something very efficiently, right. repetitiously. Um, for us to be constantly evolving, we can't really do that. We have to stay more uh, like handmade Yeah. with just a little bit of machining. Sure. So we can keep changing things around and adding uh, new shapes and so forth, you know? Um, That's a great segue to the business side of things. And I, um, there's a, there's a misconception I think that a lot of people have with, you know, um, companies like yours and, um, and they think that they're these big production setups with, you know, hundreds of employees and kind of all these, all these gears <laughs> turning. And I know that's not the case. And again, so many, <laughs> so many other people that I've talked to that are, you know, like, and these, these, um, these luthiers and, and, uh, that, you know, they, they think people think that this is a big production. Um, but I, yeah. but I know that's not the case and and even now i don't you know federa is just a a small family run business really with with a handful of employees that's exactly right yeah. you hit it right on the nose uh there is a lot of misconception um i think because we're well as well known as we are there's there's just this notion that we must be a really big company you yeah know? but is as you said we're a very small company um right now there's 18 or 19 people working mm -hmm. together in my shop. And of those, 12 are luthiers, myself and Joey included in the 12. Okay. Uh, the rest are my daughter, Laura, who is the shop manager, yeah. and she pretty much runs the, the company. Um, I have a Mike Bendy, who's the sales salesman, and uh, Fred, who does... Uh, takes orders and works on the website and he packs and ships stuff. Well, they all wear like 10 hats. We all do. Yeah. Uh, and Chris, who does uh, the accounting. So there's a few administrative, you know, people in the shop. And so it's not that many of us really. And um, it's hard work. You know, it takes a lot of time to make one of these things. So even with the 12 luthiers and the, and the seven, uh, you know, administrative people, uh, we still only finish about 400 instruments a year. Wow. And that's really, really humping it, you know, really working hard yeah. and, and, and staying on schedule. And it's, it really is very difficult work. Um, it's also very small, uh, a very small profit 
making business. It's not the kind of thing you do if you if your goal in life is to be fabulously wealthy, don't become a luthier. <laughs> don't make a lot of money doing it. Okay. <laughs> what you get you get is a soul full of uh, satisfaction. That's nice. what you get. Nice. You have to do this because you love doing it, not yeah. because you're going to get rich. Yeah. Uh, and it has another misconception, you know, people think, wow, <laughs> you got this big company, you must be loaded. Yeah. But in reality, it's a it's, it's an enormous struggle. And it's only because we're slightly insane and we love what we do why we're still here doing it. Yeah, for sure. And well and again, people are people are still wanting the instruments and and that that connection yeah. and I, I think there, I, I think but I think there's a lot to that. You know, and I think, you know, um, being a Federa player is, you know, you're part of a family, you're part of a club, you know, you're part of this this community of 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 people who, you know, who understand and, you know, are are, you know, good players for sure. They're they're pushing themselves and they're playing on big stages and all those things too. But they're um, you know, they're creative people and they're pushing boundaries and they they're connecting are. to that and, and that's part of it too. I love the artists that play our bases. They'll come into the shop sometimes and they're gushing about us, how much they love us. And I love them. I, I mean, it's just this amazing affection that goes back and forth, you know, because yeah. I, I, I'm turned on by what they do. Yeah, yeah. And I'm proud and excited to be a, a small part of that, their creative process. Yeah. So uh, it's that, you know, another feedback loop, another thing that goes back and forth between us. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. Um, so the question I was going to ask kind of goes right back to the very beginning. You know, um, you started out wanting to make guitars. You ended up making basses because bass players mm -hmm. are the ones that uh, that that connected to it. And I keep running into this so many times too. Is that you know, contrary to popular belief, guitar players are quite conservative, whereas as bass players seem to. Um, I don't know, have that inquisitive side to them or, you know, wanting to, to try different things, you know, aren't just happy with, you know, the, the Fender basses and want to try, want to try something new. Um, you know, and I, I don't know, I don't know if there's, if there's anything there or not, but it, it always is interested in me that it seems like the bass players are the ones that are, are interested in, in new things and new developments and, and pushing the instruments forward. I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I've, I've noticed that too, and I've often wondered why that is. Um, I have a few theories, don't know if they're correct or not, but going back to the early 80s when we started making the custom basses, it seemed to me that guitarists had tons of goodies to pick from in all price ranges, as they do today. You know, if you have 200 bucks, you can get a halfway decent guitar. If you've got 20,000 bucks, you can get a really good guitar and so on and so on, everything in between. But bassists didn't have such a range of choice back then. We all know the standard amazing basses that were available, the yeah. Fenders, Rickenbackers, and, and so forth. But um, so it seemed like bass players didn't have as many choices to pick from. And maybe even back then, the uh, musical uh, climate was different. Mm -hmm. There was so much tradition in bass playing. Uh, most of the guys that would come to us were forced to bring a Fender into the studio because a lot of the producers were so used to that sound. Mm -hmm. They didn't want any custom instrument in there. But that just fueled the fire even more. You know, I don't, maybe maybe because of Stanley Clark and Jaco Pastorius. They kind of started, they ignited this fire. Yeah, for sure. Where a bassist learned there was a different way to play the bass. You didn't have to just play straight up, you know, rhythmic stuff. So that started, a, a demand started happening for yeah. more complex instruments that they could express themselves with hmm. in these musical styles. Um, as soon as we made our first six string bass for Anthony, a couple of guys noticed and they were intrigued by the po the musical possibilities mm. that that kind of an, an instrument could afford them. Sure. So, you know, I think it was maybe bassists were stifled for a long time musically and having not too many options. So we came along with custom instruments, not only us, you know, all the other custom for makers. For sure, yep. There was a hunger for it. Mm. You know, there was a big empty space that we started filling. Yeah. And uh, 
I think that's part of it anyway. Yeah, for sure. And it even crossed into the pop stream. Like I think of somebody like uh, Mark King, you know, in level 42 and they're top of the charts, yeah. with, you know, the, the bass is standing right in the, at, you know, center stage, you know, mm-hmm. popping yep. and, you know. Oh, the, another thing came to my mind. I recall that period where synth bass was taken over yes. a lot of recordings because I guess it was just cheaper and easier. Sure. For, uh, so the uh, string bassists were getting concerned and they started asking us to make five string basses so they could have a low B string, yeah. which would allow them to compete back against the synth bass tracks and they could keep working. So that, that also helped spark the uh, need uh, for the multi-string basses mm. back then. Mm. And now there's such a proliferation of it. It's become so entrenched in the culture that they're just normal today. Yeah. Five string, six string basses, they're all seven string basses, 10 string basses, there's everything now. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Yeah, I think it's. Sure. I think it's awesome. For sure. Well, I I play five strings, and I I, I couldn't imagine not having that that low B. Aha! You see, yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's great. It is great. Cool. It is great. And I wonder, did this all come about from Anthony Jackson's brain? If he didn't push to get the contrabasses made, I, I guess somebody would have. You know, I yeah. I remember hearing in California. Um, Jimmy Johnson had a Lembic. Was it Lembic made of five strings okay. for him? Yeah, very likely. Yeah. But I don't remember if that had a low B or a high C, but I, you know, I'm sure other people were thinking about it and something would have happened. It's just Anthony uh was the first one to put his money up and get a yeah. a full blown six string yeah. built. Well, and I think I think getting the low B to sound good, I think that was the trick. Yeah. Um you that know, was it. That was tricky. Yeah. There were there was no uh Stumac or mm. you know, you couldn't just call up and order a six string bass bridge in those sure. days. There, yeah. there were none. Didn't exist. There were no six string bass pickups. What Joey and I did on our very first six string, we actually got two um uh, what were they? Um we had two guitar humbucking pickups that had blade magnets. And we ganged them together like a big giant P bass pickup. Wow. So that we could span, you know, that wide spacing of the six strings. Wow. And then uh, we found a Bill Lawrence pedal steel pickup. It was a wide humbucker with blades. And that worked in uh, the first five string bass that we made. Wow. There, were, there wasn't anything. We had to start asking Seymour Duncan to to make special pickups for us and yeah. luckily they did yeah yeah which is good too and that's interesting too just kind of that you know people working together to do those things and, mm-hmm. and doing that for for each other which i'm sure you know it's not going to make seymour duncan's not going to make a fortune making five string bass pickups for federa instruments but he still did it right no you know? they still did it yeah again another serendipitous connection you know mm. a, a group of people that were open to making something new and challenging and it, it just amazes me that we're all here that we managed to get done what got done. Yeah. Considering yeah. all the obstacles that we faced, you know? Yeah. So, so here's a question and I don't know if, uh, you know, if there's, if there's going to be an answer or not, but you were that 19 year old kid that goes into the shop with these, you know, guys who are, are inspiring and doing all these things. Uh, has there been anybody like that that's walked into the Federa shop and, you know, the kid who's walked in and blown you guys away and has hung around and is, is, uh, has done some, some cool things? Well, you know, there's been a few and I'm lucky to, uh, still have them with me. Um, one of the first guys that I met with golden hands, he's, a brilliant craftsman is uh, from the Ukraine. His name is Vadim. Hmm. And he's been with us now for about 25 years. Wow. Um, when I first met him, I didn't think much of him. He walked in the shop. He was looking around. He was rather aloof. But then when I saw his work, uh, you know, my whole opinion changed of him <laughs> immediately. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, my whole team, they're amazing. The yeah. guys that are working in the shop now, they're awesome. Uh, Rob works on the, um, he programs the CNCs. He's a whiz at that. He, and he's very creative mind. He imagines all sorts of amazing stuff. Dan, who does a lot of the custom carving now, 
he's amazing. He he's got it down, and he's a wonderful craftsman. Mm-hmm. Patrick does all the uh, fretboards and fingerboard, among other things. But he he's the guy. He's the I call him the fingerboard meister because uh, he could get it accurate to like a ten thousandth of an inch. I mean, it's incredible how skilled he is with fretboards, and he knows how to read them how to adjust them, how to compensate for future movements and all these little nuanced things that help us tame the neck and make it work right. So there's a deep understanding of, of a knowledge of wood, the way it moves, uh, the way uh, the tension that's put on the neck when you hammer the frets into it, the density of each wood combined. You know, we have so many combinations of fingerboard to neck wood that there's a quite a mishmash of formulas, you know, it's not easy to keep this all in your head and know what to do with every neck, but, but he does. And uh, so, yeah, I've had good luck with meeting some wonderful people and some of the men, uh, men, artisans, craftspeople that I've met along the way and been inspired by like Ned Steinberger. and uh, Oh my God. He blew me away. Still does. (laughs) He's, He's a genius, that yeah, man. Yeah, I can't figure out how he how he he comes up with all the stuff. Yeah, yeah. But and you guys are still are still doing work together. He was saying he just you just finished. Yeah, carving an oh, instrument yeah. for him. Actually, thanks to you, I owe you a thing. <laughs> okay, well, because of your book uh, that gave me an excuse to call him and I congratulated him when I when I saw that the book came out. I called Ned to congratulate uh, him, and that just sort of, you know, got us reconnected. I hadn't really spoken to him too much in the previous years. Uh, and that now we're just back at it. You know? Wow. So there's another serendipitous thing that, that, uh, yep. that gets See? added to the, to the list. <laughs> you, you're a serendipitous person. So there too. you go. There Look you at go. That. Very cool. What's, what's, what's next? What's going on? It's been 40 years. I'm sure there's another 40 years there. And I know your daughter, Laura has taken over the business realm yeah. of things and you've got quality people making instruments. Um, you know, where's, where's Fedora heading? Well, we're, no major plans except to just continue being who and what we are. Mm. You know, we're ever changing and thinking about new models and new ways to make the instruments better and better. And But I think it, what makes sometimes like one of the big factors that makes instruments better is keeping up with the times mm. and meeting new, new demands, new needs, uh, there's a change now coming. I feel, you know, we're doing more short scale instruments, yeah. more headless instruments, more lightweight, compact. That seems to be uh, what we're being asked for more now than ever. So that necessitates uh, changing along with it, the times, you know, and coming up with designs that'll meet those needs. So that's just a, an example of what we've always done, actually. It's nothing new for us. What's new is the uh, the demands that are put to us. Okay, that's interesting. And again, just to go right back to the very beginning, it's artists that I that I see that are driving that change. It is always, and as as the artists become, I can't imagine them being more technically proficient than they are now. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's some incredibly skilled people playing these days but sometimes the new the techniques change and and necessitate change in the instrument you know an anatomical shift in the way we shape a neck or how it joins the body and so forth you know so it i hope it never stops because it's what drives us i mean the uh, the variety uh, the challenges that keep coming at us is what keeps us interested and keeps us going So I hope that never changes. I don't think it will. No, I, I think it's human nature for to sure. keep seeking new frontiers, you know, <laughs> to I'm boldly go where no man has gone before. <laughs> where no man, where no bassist has gone before. There you go. Exactly. There's, there's the new Federa slogan, where no bassist has gone before. <laughs> awesome. I like that. Man. Good. That's well, cool. 
I, that's a really natural place to wrap things up. I got tons of really good stuff here. Um, I, I guess one one just quick question, and I guess if, if I don't know if this will make it or not, um, but I'm it's it's interesting to me. You start off cut, cutting the mother of pearl for the Spectre logo, and Spectre's famous for that logo, um, and the the butterfly logo with the Federa is is every bit as uh, iconic. Where did where did that come from? Where did that butterfly come from? I'll tell you real quick. Uh, when Joey and I were, you know, starting the company, we had to decide on what to call it and what the logo would be. So Joey and myself, uh, Joey felt, and our close circle of friends who were with us at the time and, and talking with us about the company, they all felt it should be called Federa Guitars because basically the ideas, the physical shapes and designs were mostly mine. I didn't want to call it that. I thought it should be a, a collaborative thing somehow. But they won out. They voted me out. They they outvoted me, so it became Federa Guitars. So now what what logo? Uh, I started writing out my name in various forms. But no matter what I did, I kept seeing Fender, mm. you know, if you oh, think yeah, about yeah. it. Of course. Right? Yeah. Fodera is F-O-D-E-R-A-F-E-N-D-E-R. There's too much similarity there. I didn't want to be confused with Fender or get Fender annoyed at us either. So I thought maybe a pictorial logo would be better. Mm. We avoid all that confusion. And we couldn't think of anything, though. We were rattling awful kinds. What about an elephant? What about a flower? What about a dog? What about a this or that? You know, we just kept raffling off uh, names. And then one of my friends, uh, a fellow named Peter, in that little ra ra raffling off session, he just blurted out, how about a butterfly? Mm. The minute he said that, I could see it in my head. And I, that stopped. That's it. I think we got it, the butterfly. So I started sketching the butterflies. And right then and there, I thought of the F being the, the F, like an F hole in a violin, being the F, the body of the butterfly. Sure. And it, it just clicked. It just made sense. It looked cool. And ultimately, the final decision came about because we felt a pictorial logo like that would be more recognizable. For a fledgling company that no one knew about, you know, think about it. If you put your name on a headstock mm. and you're, you know, you don't know who that company is, you, it's not legible more than three feet away. You mm. can't read it. So a picture you might spot from a distance and, and recognize that. Mm. So we figured the butterfly might get us a little more recognition quicker. If, uh, and sure enough, People were saying, wow, I saw that butterfly. Yeah. I saw one of your butterfly bases. Unfortunately, we were known as the butterfly base right. yeah, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Until they knew it had a name. Wow. But that was okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and even now I'll get somebody once in a while say, Hey, I saw your base on TV. I saw the butterfly. Totally. I'm, I'm just thinking of, you know, uh, James genius on Saturday night live. And often, ah. often my favorite part of that show is, is, you know, when he's, <laughs> when he's playing and you can see it, he's sitting right there in the front and there you go. there's, there's a there right there. That's, that's awesome. Sometimes I'm not even sure. I can't tell until I see the butterfly. <laughs> then I know it's one of ours. That's awesome. So it worked in that, in that way. Cool. That's how that happened. Yeah. You know, I didn't mention, I don't know if you got another minute. Yeah, of but, course. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't include Jason DeSalvo. Oh, yes. Yes. Because he actually uh, became our partner in 2009 when our company was struggling. Mm. Uh, we were going through a lot of financial difficulties. And he was a customer who became our partner. And he had, he brought to the table enormous business savvy. He's a, he's a great businessman, very successful businessman, and was able to help make Federa Guitars healthy mm. and functioning more like a proper business. Back then, we were more like a mom and pop shop, so to speak. But he helped convert it into a proper running company. And we are now functioning very well and very, uh, healthily thanks to Jason's efforts. Uh, recently he decided to move on. He's no longer a partner, 
and he's doing well. We're still dear friends. We, we, we love each other. He's an amazing guy. He's got a farm in New Jersey. Oh, wow. He's a farmer. Nice. <laughs> he's doing very well. Um, so he, what he left behind was a strong, healthy, uh, functioning company. Mm. So I uh, just wanted to mention that he really is a significant part of our history. Nice. And I dare say we might not be here today talking if he hadn't come along when he did another serendipitous meeting. Sure. You know, he bought one of our bases from a dealer. One day, decided to come in to have it tweaked, you know, set up, looked at, and that's how conversation started, which led to our partnership. Wow! So, yeah, yeah, we've had many guardian angels, Jim. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, man, they just by rights. I wonder sometimes how we we're still here, <laughs> we survived, but it's you know a lot of amazing friends and uh you know including yourself well and again i appreciate that yeah it's you're helping us now yeah and, uh, yeah well and again it, and it's it's interesting and it's fun i think you know i don't know i don't want to get too metaphysical on it but i just think you know good things attract attract good things and that's that's kind of how it how it goes together and and i know i'm really interested in it i think it's a great story and and uh, it's fun for me to to do this and chat with you and and uh find out a little bit more and you know and then and then do my thing with it too that's it's kind of that again that um reciprocal reciprocal exchange i guess for for lack of a better word that's exactly how we've always felt we're we're all part of a creative circle mm. we influence one another and then each one of us goes off and influences other people and they do beautiful things with that and so on and so on yeah the creative circle i that, love it we're i love it part too. of it yeah that's awesome many thanks Vinny, for sharing your story and all of you for listening be sure to check out Fodera basses and guitars at fodera.com and me at jimreilly.ca if you like what you're hearing on the podcast be sure to subscribe for all the latest updates and information take care everyone Run with it. Yeah, and yeah. Hi, is this Victor? It is. Hi. Hey, Victor. It's Jim Riley. Hi, Hi, Tom. It's Jim Riley. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. We finally meet. Finally meet. Oh, awesome. Thank you.